You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode two of Distributism, in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss the economic philosophy and theory that undergirds Tolkien's most famous location, the Shire. Welcome, listeners, to episode two of the Entmoot Podcast. I'm Kenny Tallarico. I'm here with my friend Sam Lieberman. Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing very well tonight. How are you, Kenny? I am. Uh, I'm great. Never been better. So really, that is a uh, wow. Well, that's not true, but I'm fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm doing good. Uh, so today we're talking about distributism, which is um, an economic philosophy that a lot of uh, observers have have. have noted is present in the Shire. So obviously in the late 19th century, you have massive social, technological, and economic upheaval across the world. Industrialism, although it's been going on for about 100 years at this point, is really starting to ramp up and fundamentally change the social, economic, political order everywhere in the planet. Um, This you know, caused a massive wave of changes in philosophical thinking and economic thinking. You could sort of start this with Hegel, run up through Marx, uh, even someone like Henry George, each had different sort of ideas about how you address the new contradictions and problems created by industrial labor relations and industrial capitalism. Uh, Among these thinkers and among these ideologies which tried to address these problems was the catholic church our old our old pals tolkien's old pals yeah distributism is not explicitly catholic a lot of modern distributists uh might say that uh but it certainly comes out of papal teaching uh and was developed primarily by catholics and it starts with rerum novarum which is pope leo the 13th 1891 encyclical and it deals especially with uh capital labor relations uh so it is a rerum novarum is a response to the wave of uh sort of socialist up, uprisings that had been occurring in europe throughout the latter half of the 19th century and a lot of it is a critique explicitly of socialism. Leo essentially views socialism as an attempt to replace God and the family with uh, the state. And he also writes that uh, because private property is a natural right, no one should be forced to share uh, his goods. But uh, Rerum Navarum is also critical of unfettered capitalism. Uh, He claims that the primary purpose of a state is to provide for the common good, which is to say that that rich and poor have equal dignity. It's a sort of conception of uh, natural human rights that, you know, your wealth shouldn't have any correlation with uh, the rights that the state respects uh, with regard to you. Um, And he also writes, and this is an interesting point that I think has a lot of bearing on later distributist thought, that both capitalism and socialism make people dependent in some way. For capitalism, people are dependent on their wages and therefore on whoever owns 
capital. In a socialist system, according to to, to Leo, uh, people are made dependent on the government and what we might now call the welfare state. And so, uh, a lot of the a lot of Leo's critiques of both capitalism and socialism, although he's he goes a little harder against socialism in 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 this particular encyclical, uh, get picked up by distributist thinkers uh, later. And that's especially relevant with the two men that are considered sort of the founders of distributism, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. Chesterton and Belloc were both um, British thinkers, although Belloc was was French, but I believe later he had uh, British citizenship. Uh, Of the early 20th century, both Catholics both of them, just like uh, Leo the Thirteenth, are critical of sort of capitalism as it is, uh, as it was practiced, um, as well as sort of the the theory of socialism. For those same reasons, a lot of their thought really comes out of Rerum Novarum, the the idea that uh, capitalism and socialism, or put differently, the project of modernity in a lot of ways, are explicitly anti-individual. Uh, they would have called both capitalism and socialism collectivist, just from the sort of textbook definition that they are placing the the good of the group above the good of the individual. For capitalism, that group is uh, whoever owns capital in the, the 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 plutocrats. For socialism, of course, which is normally considered collectivist, it's uh, sort of the you know the the mass or ho- however you want to define sort of the majority of of people. So Catholic social teaching on this continues when 40 years later, uh, Pope Pius XI publishes Quadragesimo Anno. And uh, Pius essentially is agreeing with Chesterton and Belloc. It's not, you know, a, a dialogue, but Pius's views are similar. Uh, and um, he writes essentially that industrialization in general results in less freedom because it turns a society of individuals into a mass and class society. That's the language he uses, which is very similar to what I was just talking about with Chesterton and Belloc's observation of uh, the collectivist nature of modernity. Because Pius believes that industrialization um, inevitably results in less freedom for the individual, people are less likely then to interact with each other and cooperate with each other, and they develop class consciousness as almost a defense mechanism in order to recover the freedom that they lost. Pius also echoes a lot of Pope Leo's critiques of capitalism, and I would also note that Quadragesimo Anno literally means on the 40th year, because it's the 40-year anniversary of Rerum Novarum. Uh, And he has this quote about socialism's incompatibility with Catholicism in his view. Quote, For according to Christian teaching, man, endowed with a social nature, is placed on this earth so that by leading a life in society and under an authority ordained of God, he may fully cultivate and develop all his faculties unto the praise and glory of his creator, and that by faithfully fulfilling the duties of his craft or other calling, he may obtain for himself temporal and at the same time eternal happiness." Socialism, on the other hand, wholly ignoring and indifferent to this sublime end of both man and society, affirms that human association has been instituted for the sake of material advantage alone. So what you see here is an endorsement of the teaching that there is a sort of natural hierarchy. Certain people are have callings and are called to do certain 
things in society. Some people might be called, for example, in a, the easiest example to think of for, for Catholics would be some people are called into uh, the service to be priests or nuns or what have you. And this idea here is that socialism, because it's primarily materialist or, I guess put differently, is secular, socialism denies that sort of natural calling because it is inherently connected to what God is calling one to do. So Hilaire Bellic actually defines distributism as a state of society in which the families composing it are, in a determining number, owners of the land and the means of production as well as themselves the agents of production. So what he means by this is that in a distributist system, you're making as many people as possible, as many families, as many workers, um, uh, sort of, I guess, many capitalists in their own right. Every person, ideally, in a distributed system. You're, you're distributing the means of production and the rewards of the means of production to a certain degree across society. Uh, I would say this is principally different from socialism or communism insofar as you're not trying to get rid of the means of production and you're not even necessarily trying to completely abolish social class uh most distributists not all i mean dorothy day considered herself a distributist and she was certainly more radical but most distributists are not completely opposed to the existence of all social class altogether or class distinctions you know as an existing i guess uh social system furthermore it's it's not that they think that you should do away with private property or do away with private fortunes. They just think that everyone should have a little bit of private property and a little bit of private fortune and contribute to production in their own way. Uh, the idea of everyone, this may just be a semantic thing. I think that Chesterton and, and, and Bellick would certainly disagree with the idea that they're promoting people being mini capitalists or capitalists of any sense, because I think that the a big factor of uh, the sort of theory of distributism is the idea that that greed in general is a vice. The distributive system does that because it does explicitly discourage people from accumulating lots of wealth and more wealth than they, for example, might need to sustain themselves and their families. Um, and the, the other thing that I, I would say on your point about social class, I think that's right. I think that there is there is certainly not a call to uh, to remove social class, but it goes back exactly to uh, what uh, Leo and Pius are writing and this idea about the natural order. Class is good in, in the minds of most distributists and in the view of Catholic doctrine as well, uh, class is good insofar as it reflects the natural hierarchy. When unnatural distinctions and hierarchies are inserted into society and then th those are what is determining class, that is unnatural and bad. And that is what Leo Pius, Chesterton, and Bellock would have had to say about and did say about capitalism at the time in that it was the sort of hierarchies of uh, inherited wealth or of just luck, those are unjust and unnatural hierarchies that are determining lots and lots of things about who has rights and who doesn't. They would probably say, like, 
that, you know, in some level of meritocracy in that a person who is gifted by God with with more sort of, you know, talent, like they're a really good cobbler or something, that a really good cobbler, you know, has the right to benefit from the fruits of his labor more than like a not so good cobbler. But that you know all which i should quickly just jump in yeah. there are some self-identifying socialists who would sort of agree with that yeah um so i mean all of these distinctions get murky and it's all blurred lines absolutely down the way yeah no 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 it, it it certainly is uh sam you can disagree with me on this but i think to a a person who uh doesn't know or care about this stuff uh and just has sort of you know the normal understandings and definitions of these ideologies, I think if you described a distributed system to them, they'd be more likely to mistake it for a socialist system than a capitalist system. Yes, yes. Oh, completely. I completely agree. I do think that the disincentivizing of human greed is really central to the distributed system, and it is patently the the opposite of what makes the capitalist system work. Because without greed you don't have uh you know sort of at least in theory innovators and entrepreneurs you know making new products and driving society forward etc uh and a lot of capitalists i think would say well this is the only way that's how people are people are inherently greedy uh and you know there's i think there's some truth to that but i think that it's it's extremely reductive um and in a distributed system you are explicitly discouraging people from acquiring more than what they need to support their families. Um, uh, that is not really the, that is not the sort of capitalist view of economics about what economics is about. You know, obviously these definitions get murky. If you have like, you know, someone like Rawls talking about the difference principle, there's sort of this idea in certain, you know, lines of thought. And I think some distributists might agree with this, that you do need a certain baseline level of low inequality, uh, such so to incentivize net social well-being or uh, the common good, which, you know, is a, is, a, is a concept that Catholics and distributists are really, really into. And, and you know, Piketty's written recently about these, these things and what level of inequality do you actually need? It's probably a very low level, at least uh, in my opinion. But this is all to say that the distributive system, I don't think, says that, uh, you know, you need complete social equality of everyone. But, you know, as Kenny was mentioning, it certainly does view greed as uniquely uh, not just immoral, but also corrosive to the social order and inimical to the development of a, of a common good society, of a sort of Thomist society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So distributism also has some of the sort of uh, Jeffersonian ideal of the agrarian basically being in itself virtuous as opposed to the uh uh the sort of uh, moral decay that is that comes out of cities you see this in in jefferson and then uh in in tocqueville uh this there's you know there's a and mao and mao <laughs> who was very directly inspired by jefferson fun fact yes yes uh, uh, there, there's there's a long line of of, of this sort of thinking um, and, uh, and, and what you also get in that is this distinction we've been talking about, about, uh, you know, cities are modernity, uh, agrarian lifestyles are sort of traditional. And so you still get that sort of 
modern traditional dialectic, I guess, when you're comparing, uh, you know, the more the moral character of uh, rural life and of, of urban life. And I think that you very much get that in, in the Shire. There are no cities in the Shire. Are you saying Mikkel Delving is not a city? Not a well, Mikkel Delving is a sprawling metropolis. Wait, what's the mayor's name again? And Will? Will Whitfoot. Will Whitfoot, of course. Mayor Whitfoot. Oh my god, and Lori Lightfoot literally looks like a hobbit. Uh, I'd like to move on now to uh, what the Shire is, and then we're going to talk about how distributism applies to uh, the society that Tolkien uh, portrays in the Shire. Sam, do you want to talk about what the Shire is? The Shire are, is where the hobbits live. Uh, the Shire, you know, so many things are named Shire, Worcestershire. It's just like an English name. Uh, it's a very English place. It is directly based on the West Midlands, which are where Tolkien grew up. And, you know, the Hobbits are sort of based on a rustic English people, uh, sort of out of time. There's a mix of a sort of medieval rustic pastoral ideal with sort of more modern, but nonetheless pre-industrial sort of 18th century bourgeoisie ideals. Um but the Shire is divided into four farthings, uh, which quick etymology lesson. The thing, uh, the reason that that word exists is because that refers to the sort of old Germanic, uh, Icelandic, Anglo-Saxon, Nordic, uh, so so on and so forth, uh, political deliberation system. So the thing was basically the town hall where you would go meet and decide on things politically. In Iceland. Uh, the nation was divided in four ways uh, to four thing jurisdictions called far things of north, south, east, and west, which is how the Shire is divided. So you sort of have a bit of a Nordic, sort of Icelandic political, uh, or not even political, geographic breakdown overlaid onto this sort of English rustic pastoral setting. And the only people who live in the Shire are hobbits, um, and then, you know, some animals, and I guess some other, you know, creatures out on the edge of it, if you want to include old Tom and uh, Goldberry. Uh, but with that being said, Kenny, tell me more about the Shire and its political economic systems. Yeah, so I have a, a few uh, passages here from very early in Fellowship of the Ring, actually, in the, in the prologue. So I'm going to read here. This is from... Uh, the uh, the third section of the prologue of the ordering of the Shire, and I would ask you, listener, to uh, try to hear her for the sort of uh, connections with how we were talking about distributism earlier. Tolkien writes, quote, The Shire at this time had hardly any government. Families, for the most part, managed their own affairs. Growing food and eating it occupied most of their time. In other matters, they were, as a rule, generous and not greedy, but contented and moderate, so that estates, farms, workshops, and small trades tended to remain unchanged for generations. I think right there is kind of the quintessential, like, ethos of what distributism is, that distributist ideal, right? That people are generous and not greedy, but they're content with what they have, essentially, and what they have is not changing all that much over a long period of time, but that's because that's not due to like stagnation 
or anything. That's due to the decision to sort of not expand of saying, no, what I have here is good. Let's keep what I have here. And that's also where you get the sort of some of Tolkien's uh, small C conservatism coming through. And I think that there is a there's a sort of a strain of that in uh, some of dis- the distributist thought in general, although I think that distributism is broad enough that that's like like you mentioned, Sam, Dorothy Day is a distributist who I don't th- yes. think has that same sort of inherent draw to like preservation sort of as an as, as an ideal. Of- she most certainly does not. <laughs> right. So I think that, you know, I, and I think here actually is probably a good place to to discuss quickly that distributism is not a sort of political philosophy. It's an economic philosophy. Tolkien was uh, politically, and I mean, of course, this kind of is going to give up the game for this whole podcast, but he called himself politically uh, an anarchist, which it sounds kind of, to the modern ear, probably um, contradictory to be a conservative anarchist. Uh, Of course- But not one of those whiskered men with bombs. (laughs) bombs <laughs> that is in Tolkien's letter I believe to his son uh, Christopher where he he says I I am you know I'm a political anarchist uh not one of the whiskered men with bombs but properly understood by which he meant he doesn't think that there should be a big government uh, but that is a political philosophy whose end is essentially the same end as distributism which is protecting sort of um uh, individual autonomy, uh, almost sort of, you could say colloquially, like a an appreciation for like the little guy, which is what you get throughout The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, that the, the creatures that save the world are the most insignificant creatures. And I think that you see in Tolkien's view, government is, or at least tends to be, just as oppressive as big business, for example. Uh, and so the Shire doesn't have either. The Shire doesn't really have a government. I'm going to read another passage in a moment about that. Uh, And it certainly does not have that driving factor of a capitalist system, which is is greed, competition, and uh, the desire to um, expand and acquire more and more. Uh, Hobbits explicitly, just naturally, don't have that inclination. And I think through Hobbits, you get some of Tolkien is writing, you know, hobbits are explicitly supposed to be like, you know, quaint English people of the countryside. He also saw himself as a hobbit. But I think that by putting these traits in hobbits, he's almost uh, giving hobbits the um, uh, attributes that he values most in people. Here's a quote specifically, and you can keep in mind the point I was just making about... um, about what what we would call like Tory anarchism, which is to say a sort of specifically British conservative anarchism that would often go very nicely with this sort of distributist ideal. And I, I also think we should we should mention just you know credit where credits due. A lot of what we're saying right now, I think, comes from Tolkien's Shire, the ideal of a conservative anarchist distributist governance by Yannick Imber, and we'll be uh, putting that in the show notes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I should probably should have said that said that before. Uh, a lot of yeah, the, yeah. This is uh, we're relying on uh, what Sam just mentioned, Yannick Imbert's article. We're also going to be talking a bit about Joshua Friend's book, which we've uh, referenced before, Middle Earth and the Return of the Common Good, and of course those those primary sources. So I have uh, I have here this quote for uh, again from the the prologue, uh, part three, and um, Tolkien writes quote. 
The only real official in the Shire at this date was the mayor of Mickledelving, or of the Shire, who was elected every seven years at the Free Fair on the White Downs at the Lithe, that is, at Midsummer. As mayor, almost his only duty was to preside at banquets, given on the Shire holidays, which occurred at frequent intervals. But the offices Dope, dope job. But the offices of postmaster and first sheriff were attached to the mayoralty, so that he managed both the messenger service and the watch. These were the only shire services, and the messengers were the most numerous, and much the busier of the two. By no means all hobbits were lettered, but those who were wrote constantly to all their friends and a selection of their relations who lived further off than an afternoon's walk. The sheriffs was the name that the hobbits gave to their police, or the nearest equivalent that they possessed. They had, of course, no uniforms, such things being quite unknown, only a feather in their caps, and they were in practice rather haywards than policemen, more concerned with the strayings of beasts than of people. There were, in all the shire, only twelve of them, three in each farthing, for inside work. A rather larger body, varying at need, was employed to beat the bounds, and to see that outsiders of any kind, great or small, did not make themselves a nuisance. I think in that you see, uh, just like from that, that earlier passage, the Shire does not really have much of a government. They they have a essentially they have a post office and a very very minimal police force that doesn't really. It, the main things they do are protect against wild beasts, and make sure that like uh, non hobbits, i.e., men, aren't in the Shire. Is like the main job. I think it's even less that they're not in the Shire. It's more that they're not causing trouble in the shire yes you know? yeah yeah they can go in but to make sure they're not up to no good exactly yeah um and and, and right so they're more of like an animal control slash minimal border police <laughs> than like a police force and there's I, only I 12 that, of them within the borders of the shire and then a few more who travel around outside the borders that's right and the shire's pretty big so yes. that that is that's also saying something and i i think that you know within that you see basically that the, in this sort of ideal distributist anarchist system you don't actually need a coercive state because everyone's just kind of like vibing everyone's getting along like the shire just has immaculate vibes everyone is like pretty happy they're content there's also a recognition of that natural social order that we were talking about earlier and there is for example in uh in the gamges they are the gardeners of bag end and their their family has been so the gaffer hamfast gamgee was the gardener and then he passes that role on to his son samwise and um there is a dignity in that there's a dignity at least in tolkien's portrayal of these characters there's a dignity in having this this role that you know is yours and that you believe you're good at you have almost a calling for it that's a reflection of this sort of uh heavenly ordained natural order which also is worth noting at least that you know humphrey says in his biography of tolkien that tolkien sort of carried this with him into his life that he loved to, you know, converse with people from different class backgrounds, whether it was local mailmen or police officers or just random people on the train. Um, but he was always very conscious of their class, which he thought was preordained. I don't think class is, in Tolkien's view, by definition preordained. I think that a lot, I think that Tolkien, just like, you know, the-, the Maybe not preordained, but he the- believed in the existence of social class. He thought it was good for society. Yes. Okay. Very, yes, this is true. I think that, uh, and I think the distributists would largely agree that that class. Well, most of them, definitely not Dorothy Day, but yeah. 
yes, in in general, that like it is uh, virtuous to have class distinctions again, insofar as they reflect sort of natural hierarchies. Um, where I I do think that Tolkien, as well as a lot of distributists, uh, would argue that like most uh, hierarchies that we sort of observe in society are artificial and are unnatural. Mm. Uh, for example, like the quintessential example of that would be like human slavery. That is obviously an unnatural sort of hierarchy that does not reflect the, you know, the heavenly ordained natural order. Uh, in the natural order, you know, everyone has certain natural rights, essentially, in, of which slavery uh, flagrantly violates, you know, arguably the most sort of inviolable one, which is a person's inherent freedom. Uh, and so I, I think that, like I was saying earlier, the class distinctions that those in, in, in Tolkien's camp would generally be uh, supportive of or okay with would be ones that are based, again, on on some form of meritocracy in a more or less equal society where uh, individuals have sort of equal opportunities and also are not uh, like like the the, the Gamgees are we might think of them as being sort of lower class uh, and uh, and you know they do at some level they're gonna have sort of somewhat less material wealth than uh, you know like Bilbo although Bilbo of course is very unusual with how much wealth he has although he's also generous but anyway yes. By virtue of the whole the whole situation with the dragon, um, and just a reminder to all the listeners that if you buy the Hobbit from a bookstore with the code uh, Entmoot, and when I say code, I mean you tell the person working at the counter uh, without any context, Entmoot, 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 uh, we'll actually get a fifteen percent cut of the profit. So make sure to do that. Yes, and and you uh, will be arrested. <laughs> Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the uh, NYPD. Courtesy, professionalism, and respect. <laughs> okay. That's your slogan. No, I know. I know. <laughs> okay, Sam, why don't you tell us about the scouring of the Shire? Oh, my God. So if your only exposure to the story of the Lord of the Rings is from Peter Jackson's movies, uh, your sort of impression is probably that uh, you know, the ring is destroyed in the fires of Mount Doom. Uh, Sauron defeated. Uh, Sam and Frodo explore each other's bodies. <laughs> so stupid. Uh, Sam and Frodo go up to, you know, Mount Doom, and then, uh, Frodo fails, but luckily, uh, uh, Gollum unintentionally saves the day. Then everyone goes home. Some time passes, and they all, they all being Frodo and Gandalf and the elves, sail into the west, and thus ends the film. Uh, but what really happens in the books is actually far more interesting, and that is that uh, all the hobbits return to the Shire only to discover that it fucking sucks. That it has gone to shit. Uh, it is ruled by this dictator named Sharky. And Sharky is this weird industrialist dude who's burning down trees. It actually notes, initially he was just burning down trees to like, you know, do industrialism, but eventually they just start burning them down for the sake of it. 
the mayor, Will Whitfoot, uh, you know, similar to Mayor Lori Lightfoot, another hero of, uh, of uh, civil disobedience, uh, <laughs> is in prison. Um, so what are we going to do without the mayor? Uh, there's, like, you know, murders going on. Uh, everything is horrific. Like, the entire place is a burned-out, uh, sort of gross, almost post-apocalyptic wasteland. And these hobbits, who just got back from, you know, sort of defeating the greatest evil in the world that exists at this point in time, are like, uh, we can sort of handle this. And what they discover uh, is that Sharky is actually Saruman, uh, devoid of all of his magic. After Saruman was expelled from the Council of the Astari, or the Wizards, by Gandalf in the Two Towers... Almost all of his magic is gone beyond, besides his ability to, like, be weirdly persuasive with his sort of magical voice. And uh, Krent has a lot of really good stuff to talk about, uh, the link between this and Hegel in his book, which, you know, mean, can he really recommend you read? But um, he's been basically tricked a bunch of hobbits into, you know, letting him become dictator. Um, but he's also, like, at this point, sort of a mostly non-magical, just weird old guy. He's not really actually some godlike figure at this point. So the second that the ruse is up, it's like, like he's sort of, you know, he's sort of freaked out. And uh, his old pal Wormtongue is still there, uh, who's maybe the most iconic. I I wouldn't say pal. I would say more like slave. (laughs) Very true. Oh, my God. You may have seen this. I saw this meme on Twitter, which was like. Like, why did, like, who the fuck let, like, this weird fucking gross little guy, Wormtongue, like, basically controlled Rohan's government? Like, how did this even happen? But I was going to say about uh, about the scarring of the Shire, it is also worth noting that uh, Sharky is sort of operating in the in the shadows. Uh, and uh, most of the the residents of the Shire, as well as the, the police force, the sheriffs, who have been greatly expanded... Uh, are actually reporting to this this guy that they all call the chief, uh, who also goes by the name Pimple. Uh, and you find out that Pimple is actually Lotho Sackville Baggins, the son of Lobelia Sackville Baggins, um, which is uh, Bilbo and Frodo's cousin, who everyone hates. And so uh, Lotho is sort of the, the nominal... Uh, ruler of the Shire, who deposes, uh, who deposes our king Will Whitfoot, um, and uh, but but Sharky is 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 actually has Lotho or Pimple imprisoned at Bag End, and and uh, and he's actually calling the shots. Sharky is, and so I also do think it's worth noting that uh, for Tolkien, uh, Saruman, who's you know the really the secondary antagonist of of. Uh, of the work and is, uh, you know, pretty profoundly a bad guy. Yes. Uh, when devoid of magic, he basically is just like, I don't know, like JP Morgan. (laughs) Yeah. It's also, you know, worth noting that on some level, people are just coerced into this, but there's also a a segment of people and, and they meet one of these guys. I forget his name. Uh, when the hobbits, uh, the protagonist hobbits re-enter the Shire, who are like, oh yeah, this is good. Like Sharky is like is doing good changes. It's um, it's 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 you know vaguely reminiscent almost to 
I mean, it's it, it's sort of fascistic, really. Um, it, it, it very much is. You especially see that in the sort of rapid expansion of um, what, you know, what you can call the state, I guess, but it, it is really the state in the form of this oppressive police force. Oppressive police force plus industrial corporation, which is the sort of fascist mode. Plus also, though, there is, you do get Tolkien's sort of critique of socialism here too, or I guess state socialism or communism really is probably the more accurate uh, modern way to, to say I it. I would but, concur, yeah. Uh, but, um, and let me let me find this quote here. So when the four hobbits arrive back in the Shire uh, from, you know, saving the world, uh, they find that there is now a big gate on what used to just be the bridge that would take you, um, I believe, over the Brandywine River and into the Shire. That gate never used to be there, and they're like, hmm, this is weird. And they notice a bunch of what they call unshire-like buildings behind it, meaning, like, usually, like, two-story buildings. Um, and uh, they are confronted by a hobbit by the name of Hob Hayward, who basically says, sorry, you can't, you can't come in. Don't you see the notice that says, no admittance between sundown and sunrise? Uh, and, uh, and Mary says, wait a second, I know you, what are, what are you doing? Open the gate. You, you know who we are. You know, we're, we're hobbits. We're from the Shire. You can, you can let us in. And Hob is like, oh, I'm so sorry. I do know you guys, but I still can't let you in because, uh, I'm under orders from the chief, which is pimple. Um, eventually, of course, they, you know, they convince him to let him in basically. And they start asking him questions about like, what the hell's going on here? This is weird. Uh, and Mary says, quote, We'll see the chief later. In the meantime, we want a lodging for the night, and as you seem to have pulled down the bridge in and built this dismal place instead, you'll have to put us up. I'm sorry, Mr. Mary, said Hob, but it isn't allowed. What isn't allowed? Taking in folk offhand-like and eating extra food and all that, said Hob. What's the matter with the place, said Mary? Has it been a bad year or what? I thought it had been a fine summer and harvest. Well, no, the year's been good enough, said Hob. We grows a lot of food, but we don't rightly know what becomes of it. It's all these gatherers and sharers, I reckon, going round counting and measuring and taking off to storage. They do more gathering than sharing, and we never see most of the stuff again. Unquote. So here you see the, the imposition of lots and lots of arbitrary rules uh, that really only serve sort of the, you know, I guess you could say like the ruling class. By that I really mean like Pimple and the people that are close to him and like the, the higher ups in his police force. The ruling class of Pimple. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Um, but you, you also get what is sort of the uh, um, the critique of a sort of state-centric socialism in that the idea of gatherers and sharers coming to to take, you know, the... Uh, the crops or whatever that the sort of hob that the regular hobbits grow, and then taking them supposedly for the purpose of redistribution, uh, sort of just redistribution with the consent of everyone, but it's really just redistribution to uh, Lotho and his cronies. Basically, it's not actually benefiting the people that it's allegedly going to benefit. Although I don't even know that there really is that pretext here that. Uh, that it is there. I don't, there's not like, you know, a sort of a Marxist or something doctrine behind it. Either way, I think that there, I think Tolkien himself would have understood that as a critique of socialism. And then I do have, I do have one other quote here. This is the textual basis for everything that we've been discussing and about sort of, 
the uh, the change in the in the uh, the character of the Shire society that comes about from the scouring of the Shire. This is all a uh, this is a long passage that is spoken by Farmer Cotton. Who, Sam? I don't know if you know this. Do you know what Farm Co- Farmer Cotton's full name is? I do not. No. I'll give you a hint. He now serves as the senator from Arkansas. Oh my God! Oh, he's Tom Cotton. Oh His name God, is literally that's... Farmer Tom Cotton. So you see here in uh, in Farmer Cotton's description of sort of what happened in the scouring of the Shire, uh, you see here really all of the distributist critiques about uh, everything, about capitalism, about socialism. You kind of get it all here because you see that Lotho is only interested in power for power's sake and money for money's sake. He wants to own everything and he wants to boss people around. Uh, and you, both of those are sort of incompatible with this distributist anarchist system in which everyone is at, at in some way equal, except for those, you know, reflections of natural hierarchy that would be a, a just hierarchy. This is like the quintessential example of an unjust hierarchy that is artificially imposed by force. Quote, It all began with Pimple, as we call him, and it began as soon as you'd gone off, Mr. Frodo. He'd funny ideas, had Pimple. Seems he wanted to own everything himself, and then order other folk about. It soon came out that he already did own a sight more than was good for him, and he was always grabbing more. Though where he got the money was a mystery. Mills and malt houses and inns and farms and leaf plantations. He'd already bought Sandyman's mill before he came to Bag End, seemingly. Of course, he started with a lot of property in the South Farthing, which he had from his dad, and it seems he'd be selling a lot of the best leaf and sending it away quietly for a year or two. But at the end of last year, he began sending away loads of stuff, not only leaf. Things began to get short, and winter coming on, too. Folk got angry, but he had his answer. A lot of men, ruffians mostly, came with great wagons, some to carry off the goods south away and others to stay. And more came. And before we knew where we were, they were planted here and there all over the Shire, and were felling trees and digging and building themselves sheds and houses just as they liked. At first, goods and damage was paid for by Pimple, but soon they began lording it around and taking what they wanted. Then there was a bit of trouble, but not enough. Old Will the Mayor set off for Bag End to protest, but he never got there. Ruffians laid hands on him and took him and locked him up in a hole in Mickle Delving, and there he is now. And after that, it would be soon after New Year, there wasn't no more mayor, and Pimple called himself Chief Sheriff, or just Chief, and did as he liked. And if anyone got uppish, as they called it, they followed Will. So things went from bad to worse. There wasn't no smoke left, save for the men, and the chief didn't hold with beer, save for his men, and closed all the inns. And everything except rules got shorter and shorter, unless one could hide a bit of one's own when the ruffians went round gathering stuff up for fair distribution, which meant they got it and we didn't, except for the leavings which you could have at the sheriff houses if you could stomach them. All very bad. But since Sharky came, it's been plain ruination. So, that's a, a long quote, but I think within it you, you perfectly get... The, the, uh, you, you get a ton of stuff. You get the police forcefully repressing uh, Will Whitfoot, who is the rightfully elected uh, mayor and is representative of this sort of uh, anarchist system in that, you know, his if you can even call what Will Whitfoot is in charge of a state, it is Which so it's really mi- not. It's so minimal. And, and it, it is by force sort of deposing that and replacing it with a, a system essentially of 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 plutocratic cronyism in that 
they and and also I will point out that it is under the guise of a sort of socialistic ideal of a just redistribution of wealth. Farmer Cotton specifically says that you know it's in quotes that that what they're doing is collecting crops and goods for fair distri- fair redistribution, uh, which of course is explicitly not what happens. They t- all their stuff gets taken and it all goes to Lotho and uh, and the sheriffs. You know it's 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 sort of a mocking of what you know Tolkien would have called socialism, which is, you know, he'd be probably referring to Chinese or, or, or Russian uh, socialism, communism, um, as basically mocking it and saying what you're calling a redistribution of wealth really is just sort of enriching whoever holds the levers of power, which is no different from capitalism, which also redistributes wealth uh, to the sort of plutocrats and the captains of industry. He's really saying, no, both of these systems are unjust and are, uh, you know, sort of demean individual liberty, make people beholden to the powers that be, essentially, whether that's the government or industry, and that the sort of anarchist distributist system of the Shire is the way to promote individual liberty, individual rights, uh, equality to the extent that that's natural, etc. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much I have to add, honestly. I guess you just sort of see that the scouring of the Shire really through... I guess like a dialectical reasoning through showing you the antithesis of the um, sort of distributist anarchist conservative system really shows you how anarchist and distributist and conservative the Shire was beforehand where you had very little government, you had a real emphasis on social role and family values, and you had, although not even equitable distribution of property and wealth by any means, you had a fairly... Uh, reasonable distribution, and there really wasn't anyone who was deprived of property ownership or some ownership of the means of production. And this is completely thrown out by uh, Sharky or Saruman. Um, and there's also a little bit of just like, you know, it, it, it's it's a really funny way to sort of end the, you know, Lord of the Rings, because on the one hand, it's like, this feels sort of not important. But it's maybe the most directly political thing you get in the entire series. Or I no, I, I completely agree with that. I would say the only thing comparably as political in his writing is the Acalabeth. Certainly, this is the most political thing within Lord of the Rings, the scouring of the Shire. It most clearly demonstrates Tolkien's own political affinities, I guess, uh, through this, you know dialectical antithesis that you see in the scouring of the Shire. It's everything that Tolkien hates. Uh, and um, and so I think that that's why it's so useful in understanding this sort of distributist ideal of the Shire. I'd also like to point out when we say uh, the conservative system of um, anarcho-distributism, I guess you could call it, uh, we are talking about uh, conservative, certainly with a small c, relating to the uh, the sort of the idea of prioritizing the preservation of what is good and just about society, rather than conservative, almost as like a stand-in for you know capitalist or, or, or laissez-faire. Uh, it's conservative in much more of a sort of um, older sense, and and actually, uh, yes, and actually with you know with respect to that, uh, in a lot of ways the um, uh, the 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 pre scouring of the Shire is also quite liberal uh, in its yeah 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 in, in, in its um, prioritization 
of the individual, of an individual's freedom. Uh, you get, you know, freedom essentially within the role that you're given, right? It, it, so it's conservative in the desire to uh, preserve what is good and just about the past, and it's liberal in its clear respect for the sort of the rights and dignity of the individual. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that analysis. Okay, Sam, I think that that basically covers everything that that we wanted to touch on with the uh, distributist system. Uh, Do you have any parting thoughts about, about any of this? I'll say really quickly that a part of the distributist system is obviously the actual economic system. The sort of contradiction here depends on your own interpretation of the text and also secondary interpretations is to what extent the economies you see in the legendarium uh, are based on gift giving as a form of social control and economic exchange uh, versus a sort of bartering system versus a currency system. All of these systems are obviously at play. Tolkien was very inspired by Norse Eddic uh, mythology and the economies of, you know, medieval and Viking era Norway and Sweden and Germany all had significant gift-giving components. And we'll be getting into all of this stuff on future episodes. And it is related to the distributist uh, discussions, but I just didn't think that we had time for it. Yeah, and that that was why I kind of dominated this episode because the the gift giving and uh, the uh, the development of currency are both very much in uh, in Sam's uh, sphere of influence. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, but rest assured, we will do uh, future episodes on uh, each of those topics, uh, along with probably lots of others related to the economic systems of Middle-earth, which is, of course, only a subset of all the stuff we're going to be talking about. But we did want to keep this one relatively narrow, Chesterton and Bellick stuff about what distributism is and how that comes out in in the Shire, uh, and then especially how you see that sort of um, perverted in the scouring of the Shire. Uh, So I think that that basically covers everything that that I wanted to talk about. Uh, Sam, are, are, are you good? Yeah, I think I'm all good. I'm all set. All right, well then, uh, I think that just about does it for this episode of the Entmoot Podcast. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Uh, Sam, I will talk to you next time. Yeah, bye. Have a good one, listeners. Bye-bye. or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes.